Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. I'm just lived experience of like being indigenous and like fighting these fights and like being the loud one in the meetings. Honestly, that's what I say to people who talk to me about it because I was like a very lonely road of feeling like a lot of times being loud in these meetings and saying the things that needed to be said and maybe not being the most liked person because of that. But then like 20 people later in my inbox, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you had the courage. And that's really where it started. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. On Indigenous Peoples Day in 2021, Minnetonka, the 76-year-old non-Native-owned company known for its moccasins, publicly apologized for appropriating Native culture and promised to make reparations. Guiding that work was Adrian Benjamin, an artist and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. Adrian was suddenly thrust into the spotlight as news of Minnetonka's apology and reconciliation made national headlines. Since then, Minnetonka has released two hat collaborations with Adrian and beaded moccasins designed by a Native artist. The company has donated money to Native organizations, hired Native workers, and continues its journey to own and repair generations of hurt. You can read more about all of that at tcbmag.com. Meanwhile, I wondered, how does one become a reconciliation advisor? And is that a career path? Today, we talk to Adrian about growing up on a reservation in Minnesota, becoming the mother of a special needs child at a very young age, channeling her own struggles and stress into art, and then unexpectedly finding her way into business. Well, I grew up uh, mainly (laughs) kind of traditionally, I guess, in, in retrospect with my grandparents and who both were first speakers there they spoke Ojibwe and it was really kind of my first peek into that part of myself which is really interesting because I look at family pictures and I didn't realize that I was any different looking than my family until I got into high school or anything like that then I realized my skin was a little lighter and you know like everybody else and but I had a lot of good times with my grandparents when they would get on phone calls with their friends and stuff because they would, you know, I'd answer the phone and hand it to them and they would start speaking Ojibwe. And so one of my friends was like, I always felt like that was the key to go into the other room, you know, but for me, (laughs) I was the nosy kid. It made me want to sit and like perk and perch and and listen. Did you understand? I I do. I have a better ear for it, I think, now, thanks to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not a great speaker at at this point in my life, but I do teach like beginner I feel pretty confident in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a treat to uh-huh. to grow up with that. And I feel really blessed that I got to hear the language in that aspect and listen to my grandparents talk to their friends. And it was actually something as as they got older and even as my, my grandma um, was in her later years, she was like, I miss it. I miss that, being able to have those conversations just openly with people, mm-hmm. uh, with her friends or with family. And because as she got older, she just... There's, you know, those people who could speak the language were were passing on, you know, Mm -hmm. and so it got to be a a lesser and less thing experience for her to have. So she was always happy when she would hear that I was going to, you know, picking it up or when I'd ask her questions, what does this mean or whatever. So it really made her her happy, too. So So did you grow up with a lot of family around you? I I did. So (laughs) I grew up in the smallest I guess, faction of the Mille Lacs Reservation. It's it's geographically split into four separate areas. Three districts is what they call it. Mm-hmm. So there's Hinkley, where Grand Casino Hinkley is, and there's the main reservation in Mille Lacs. Then there's this, what they call District 2, which is 
aisle and it's this very small I think maybe there was three four families that oh really that grew up there yeah and that's where I'm from okay and then they they hooked that with McGregor or East Lake which is called District 2 in Malax. so all of us that grew up my grandma had six brothers and sisters that were alive at the time she had like 14 in, in her whole life but a lot of those were older and had passed on but so they all had kids and we all grew up on this little dirt road in an hmm. aisle. And so all of us are very close still. And it was an interesting experience. And then we went to a public school, right? So hmm. that was an experience growing up. Was that culture shock? I think in some cases, like I said, I never realized that I looked any different than my family, but people at school made sure I knew it, right? Like, so I felt like, I think, well, the social terms like white passing, right? And I was very light when I was a kid. I almost had like blondish hair, like my hair is now, but my hair now grows out dark, but it was, uh-huh. you know, blondish. And it was really interesting when I was in high school was when the Mille Lacs Band was going through their uh, first treaty Supreme Court case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had friends, I played sports and it got really interesting. And I actually had written some poetry about it, about how you could walk into a room And you no longer like knew who really was your friend because there was this, you know, I don't know, it was just this tension you could feel because kids would be talking about that court case, right? Or whatever their parents would say and just ugly words, you know, use slurs of Mm -hmm. Native American people or just, and then sometimes just speaking untruths about it, you know, or they could tell they were just very like uneducated, just knew what, what the, whatever the, the buzzword was for the time. And it was very hurtful. So I wrote, a, I wrote a, a poetry piece about walking into a classroom and hearing that, shh, like she's coming, they're coming, mm. or uh, my other like native cousins or whatever. We walk into these rooms and people would go quiet, right? Because to one moment they'd be your friend, but like he yeah. couldn't be your friend enough to get over the fact that you were, quote, Indian, right? Right. That sticks with you, being othered in that way. Oh, yeah. And I think that was, if, we're, if I'm looking back in my life, the beginning of what I feel like was my beginning drive, right, to try to educate change. Mm. You know, I, I just feel like the importance of that education, even still, mm-hmm. you know, when I look back at it, like I've looked at like what would be the most impactful thing to have changed what my experiences were. And I just feel like it's that, you know, some people get their information and or they just hear it from their parents, right? Mm-hmm. If their parents are sitting here, well, these you know, bleep bleep Indians are doing this or they expect this or they, you know what I mean? And there's like so much history and law and things that have been passed and uh, experiences that haven't been talked about that it's, (laughs) I mean, to me, it's just blows my mind for people to jump to judgment without knowing half of it. And I think we're really good at that in the United States in general. I mean, with the black experience where we still haven't given that that light yet so it's it's hard from you know i mean i'm like we're like a way smaller percentage of the population so to to see what that experience looks like and what you know has happened it's not surprising to me that we've what what that experience was for me in high school i started to uh work for my tribe for the malax band of ojibwe Mm -hmm. and i started at like an entry-level position being like a I guess kind of a secretary into this newly formed um, boys and girls club. At the time, the tribe had a partnership with that organization. Can I just ask one? I'm I'm, I'm probably going to ask a lot of dumb yeah, questions, no. but sure. but better to ask, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in so when you grow up on the reservation, is there sort of like is there less pressure to think about like what what you want to be because you kind of know there will be a job for you? Do do you grow up knowing that, that there's going to be a job if you want it? I would say absolutely not. Like, I always felt like, like, like I wanted to work, like, after all of my stuff, I was very inspired to want to work with youth. Mm -hmm. But even when I went into that job, I don't feel like I went into it thinking that, right? I just knew I needed something right like I needed to support myself okay so it just worked out that way yeah but I don't think so I don't think so in general like when I grew up on the res like I saw other people drinking Mm -hmm. I saw other people you know like bouncing from job to job or like my grandparents were pretty steady stable Mm -hmm. people but in general like I would have said that because of my experience in high school too that 
I didn't know where I was going to fit into anything because I saw this this different reservation life than what I saw outside in in, in the high school and mm. maybe in this external world the way that it seemed to us because it was so different, right? And so and I didn't know. did you know. want to go there? Did, did you think there was a place for you there? No. I would say no to that too. Like yeah. I always felt like I did like like worrying about the future was something that I don't know that I could do for a long time like because I was, you know, I, uh, <laughs> my mom was an alcoholic for some time and I think that that's kind of the the case that happens a lot with yeah. with youth on the reservation there's so much more to worry about like socially in front of you that you can't really look ahead hmm. to think about that and your dreams are like seem a lot smaller because of access and you know all those other things like that so to answer that question I would say okay. I don't think I had a, a clue and I had so much trauma for me specifically happening that yeah. I was just like I just need to work because I yeah, need money, yeah. you know? Okay, like, <laughs> so you start working and, <laughs> yeah. and what does that lead to? So I started working and I absolutely <laughs> fell in love with working with kids mm-hmm. um, because of all of my, um, you know, triumph over, over <laughs> tragedy, maybe. Uh, I started to get like some people were like, hey, you should uh, go for this Blandon Foundation Reservation Leadership Program. Mm. And that was my first experience kind of into like thinking about things bigger than the res or Mm -hmm. bigger than myself or anything like that. And then it led to Bush Foundation at the time. Now it's um, under a different kind of umbrella, but they're uh, Native Nation Rebuilders Program. Mm -hmm. And that one, I would say, was really the moment where I where things took off for me or I kind of realized that maybe a place in in my tribe or in just in my life. So the kind of the premise of that program was to, um, which was sad. And I've I've written about do it after the fact of like, they had a zero budget thing where you could work in teams or by yourself and something that you would bring back to your tribe, Mm. uh, like a program or an idea, right? And I talked about like, I thought about all my experiences that I had growing up where if it wasn't for specific adults in the community that were positive, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have definitely steered down a good path and yeah. had access to arts or language or college readiness. All these different things. So we, um, I had this idea, and I called it Gainigan as the jig, which I got from an elder, which is which means the ones who will lead. That's what that means in Ojibwe again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but it was built on four pillars, and it was continuing education. It was learning about treaty rights and tribal law, mm-hmm. and leadership skills and then language and those were the four pillars that that program was built on and myself and my coworker and extremely good great friend over the years his name is Byron Ninham him and I like really just kind of put pen to paper and like started to kind of campaign that that program around in the tribe hmm. and like and we did it come to fruition we, it did we okay. started started out asking just for like money for like the snacks on the weekends yeah. for it into this grant opportunity came up and we used it that idea to write this grant and we had this solid group of kids from all of the districts that would come we brought in language speakers we brought in like tribal leaders from across the country to talk to kids about why it's important to learn not only you know your education you know externally or you get your diploma but to learn about treaty rights and why your your tribe needs you mm. to get that education and then come back right why it's important to learn the language and we had those language speakers come along on trips so if we took the kids to like college readiness trips they would speak constantly like when we were at a volleyball game or a basketball game or while they were touring Mm -hmm. we tried to make that really accessible and so did that become a a, I mean that's a wonderful uh, program and contribution to your community did it become a a job for you it became a job for me and it became a job for Byron it it became actually so the tribe's youth program now is named Ganygon as a jig like they mm. kind of absorbed it and and took that name on to and really like the program now is a lot more involved than it was because before I felt like it was like a just a lock or a, a key key mm-hmm. program or whatever like it was just kids go after school there wasn't really a lot of focus it was just like after school daycare kind of yeah. in a sense you know yeah. and I'm like we could do so much you right, know so right so at this point you've kind of got the you, you've got you know that you can do this yep you you can lead you can organize what came next so so after that I got tapped by some community members to work with the Minnesota um, 
uh, education equity partnership. Mm. And it was it was an interesting job. So what what that pro or what that idea was around was getting these uh, the tribal school, which is Nayashing, which is run by the by Malax, by the tribe. And then Isle and Onamia, which have high rates of indigenous youth mm-hmm. uh, attending those public schools to come together and try to talk about, you know, furthering education for native students, how you, you know, what discipline, because like disciplinary referrals from an indigenous youth to a non-indigenous youth were like eight to one huh. at the time. So there's all these big issues, the graduation rates. So the partnership wanted to try to get on a page to like, how do we talk about this? How do these schools work together? How do public schools better educate, you know, their, the youth and not only that, but their teachers about what that experience is as, as in, as native youth. Mm -hmm. It's different. It is different when you come from, you know, the res and growing up there and stuff like that to come into a public school, specifically in a border town, like I said, where you have these like and it's so crazy that it came about now because now the tribe is in it in it again with the county Mm -hmm. so kids are dealing with that or even to go through it when this was happening well (laughs) the whole mega stuff was happening too Uh, and that became a part of what we were dealing with as well like sure why kids felt othered Mm -hmm. when kids would wear the mega hats or go into these big you know rallies in the school so it became um Really interesting work. There was a lot of like, like stonewall things that would happen. A lot of people that I I wondered why they kept showing up to the meetings if they Hmm. were so against it. But then in my heart, I was like, it started to make me think about it. I'm like, something here is interesting them enough to maybe they want to know maybe this is like, gonna be their thing to turn it because sometimes it really felt like it was like, God, this is getting nowhere. Yeah. A lot of people were just like, well, why should we have to teach Ojibwe language in, in our schools? And I'm like, well, why did Ojibwe youth have to learn English. That's the mm. same thing. It's just as important. And our knowledge base is not less than. And I think that's what's happening across the state and even a good country right now is like we're learning even on climate levels that indigenous knowledge is light years beyond, you know, even with the sage phenomena. I think about that, too, because it was like, oh, sage has these cleaning properties and now it's being sold on Amazon. And it's like... <laughs> That's you, been a, that's, that yeah, it's been a thing for generations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so most of what you had done to this point is related mm-hmm. to 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 helping the the tribe, education, youth. At what point did you start thinking maybe I can have an impact in business? Yeah. So I didn't for a lot. <laughs> I still, I, yeah. So actually, the pandemic pushed me off of off of uh, the maybe the metaphoric cliff of jumping to believe that I could uh-huh. for a long time like my friends were like you should just do your own art that was kind art of was something you always did on art the was side? something I was my side hustle yeah you weren't making money or were you I, I, mean, were I you was selling? somewhat okay so I would just do it when I could and I had this one specific well, I had a lot of mentors in my life but one specific mentor was like I need to train somebody that's going to make jingle dresses in Mille Lacs specifically because that is where the home of the jingle dress is. And What's a jingle dress? Sorry. A jingle dress. Yes. Okay. So the, <laughs> a jingle dress is a, a, a part of regalia, uh-huh. but in Mille Lacs it is held in very high regard because a long time ago, a old man had a dream about this dress and these women dancing in these four colors, red, yellow, green, and blue. Uh-huh. And he had a sick daughter, this man did. And he dreamt about these women dancing in these dresses that had these metal cones um, that in this, the sound he heard, the way they were dancing, he talked about it. And his wife decided they should make them for whatever reason he dreamt about them. And uh, it, they danced, had a ceremony for these dresses and his daughter became well. And from that point, it mm. became known as this healing dress. And so it's very special because it's in powwows now across the country and across oh, wow. the, you know, even the borders of nations and into Canada and everywhere. And it, and you learned how to make them. I learned how to make them from this woman who is uh, Lakota, but she is, lives in Wisconsin. And yeah, I went through this like huge crash course with her and she kind of just always kept pushing me like, you need to do this. 
And I was always so annoyed because I mean, I was young still at the time. And I just had so many things going on with Bella and my life and just trying to do mm-hmm. all of this. Right. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't have time to sew. <laughs> yeah. She pushed me and continued to do it. And I started like it became an outlet. So you've taken on another thing, but but it gives you sort of that creative outlet. Yes. And, and there's something like almost a meditative space about, about yes. doing it. Meanwhile, you said the pandemic hit and that sort of pushed you in a new direction. Oh, yes. How? What, what, so, how so, did that happen? Yeah. So I was actually in the formulation of my second program that was going to be more arts-based with mm-hmm. the tribe. Um, that one was called Maze and Itchigajig, and that one means we all create um, amazing and beautiful things together. Hmm. So I was in the process of we were, had just got that funded. We were just going to start it, and this one was more about bringing artists from around the world into Mille Lacs to teach youth, whether it be poetry, all these different ideas. And then the pandemic came, and that like got abruptly halted. So I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? And mm-hmm. I... As scared as I was in that moment, I feel like the universe just caught me. (laughs) And I had picked up this side job with Pamela Standing of the Minnesota Indigenous Business Alliance, working with her, wanting to build what is now the Native Arts Alliance, Minnesota Indigenous Arts Alliance. And so I did some of the pickup work for that, like in the beginning stages of just interviewing community. Her and I got really tight and she's important to this because she's what brought me to Minnetonka so we started having really deep conversations and she was just like I think the way that you think and the way that you talk about things and the fight you have I really she she explained that she had been having prior meetings with with Jory and David at at Minnetonka Mm -hmm. but that they were looking for somebody to really like kick their next level or that they wanted to really start their reconciliation and repair work and 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 you were the person to do that she she thought i was so what does reconciliation work look like we'll find out after a word from our sponsor today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of best and flanagan understand identify manage protect and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets expect a customized approach from best and flanagan with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best in Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. We pick up with Adrienne meeting the owners of Minnetonka and asking herself whether she can, in good conscience, work with this company. What did you know about, what did you think about, if anything, about Minnetonka? Had you ever bought any of their products? Great questions. Yes, I had many reserves. So when she was talking to me about it, I was like, ooh, I don't know. For someone in the indigenous community to go stand by someone, uh, an appropriative company for one, you know, like I had to know, and this is what I told Pamela, I was just like, I have to meet them. You know what I mean? Like I have to like, I want to know where they are about this. Your impression was they are outsiders that have been using our Yeah, yeah. Our it, it's it's hurtful, but at mm-hmm. the same time, I will say I have worn a pair I've worn <laughs> one and that's that was the interesting thing that ended up happening too as as our path went along was that we've met so many people that were like, "Yeah, my grandma just bought Minnetonkas because I didn't have access to split toe or pucker toe moccasins or an mm. artist in the community to make them. So a lot of kids have danced in powwows over time in really? Minnetonka. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty regular. We've, I mean, in my life, and then we've come to find out, you know, like yeah. interviewing people. Huh. So Okay. So, so you're willing to go talk to them. Are you thinking to yourself at this point? And, and we should say also, um, Jory and, and her father, David, yep. who, who run Minnetonka and it's fourth generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is something that has been gnawing at them increasingly. They they knew they needed to do something. And it's really hard. Mm-hmm. It's it's really hard. You know, we, I, I spoke to them about how if you're building a company in 2022, it's really easy to, to think about the world today and be mission driven and be a B Corp or, you know, think about equity and inclusion. But when you take over something that has a 76 year old history things were very different then and mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not making excuses nope. but i'm just saying so that's where they were thinking huh what do what do we do then they meet you and are you thinking i can help 
I was thinking I want to see how they feel about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like, do they understand the depths of what their company has done, what they've done, their financial, like, familial wealth? Like, do they understand the impacts, right? Because I think that, that there's a lot of companies that maybe just, like, and I wanted it to be a deeper thing rather than just like, yeah, we're going to do this public apology and then we're we're good. Sure. Like that's that's what we needed to do or something, you know, because to me, I was just like, mm, you can find someone else that can PR that for you. You know, right, like right. I wanted to hear from them that they were interested in that deeper work of like real reconciliation or real repair, real, you know. And what did that forward. what did that look like to you? What what would. What would is there is there enough that they can do? You know, we've we've talked through that. And so we had well, I'll start. So we had our first meeting and um, I felt that from them, like I felt that they really cared and that they were about more than just like, we just want to do this apology like we have really realized and have felt this for a long time. What you said, you know, and they were interested in making relationships and and honestly I felt valued that Mm -hmm. was one one Hmm. common one one of the main things it was just like we're here to listen to you we're here to listen to the community and we're here to take that and do the most that what we can like this isn't just going to be this apology or this one project or this one thing like we want to build this into like the core of what Minnetonka is and give back to native artists and native communities in the best way that we can because we do realize what our appropriation has done, what our, how our wealth has been built by, by these things, right? How did you begin to help them or direct them? Yeah, so it, it was very big. Um, I think we just, in the beginning stages, had a lot. We were going to, uh, actually, I do remember this now, and this is something we've, we talked about a lot. I, at the time, was beating the edges of fedoras or just kind of countryish looking hats. And they were like, we should just do this collaboration. Like, you can make this amount for us or, and we'll, like, push it, right? Which, great opportunity for an artist, you know? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. And, you know, and that was, and then, like, we were kind of getting into the stages of I was going to start to do that. And I just had, like, this moment. And I was like no, this can't, we cannot do anything. Like, it was easy to get swept up in it, right? Just personally. But then I had the the moment and I was like, here's what needs to happen. I said, like, in order for me as a person and as an Indigenous community member and just whether it's my tribe or nationwide, whatever, like, this community needs to hear this apology. Mm these these appropriations and hurts need to be named you wanted them so it's interesting they they said that you know they didn't want to publicize oh we're doing this work mm-hmm. and look like they were you know kind of claiming something that wasn't that was that just was, in process yep but you wanted them to go public before you were willing to collaborate why was that important to you i think that otherwise it would have been viewed from from my perspective, from the Native community's perspective, from, I think, the public's perspective of just like, because there's a lot of companies that are doing that, right? Like, there's other companies out there that have appropriated and they're like, let's just bring in Native people now and then we're still not going to talk about what happened. We're just going to, like, pretend and just, you know, we're doing this now, so mm. let's not talk, you know? And I think that that conversation needed to be opened. And I think one thing that I've learned doing equity work or in anything that I've done is that acknowledgement is so important. It is like the step before any healing can begin. You know, it's just it, it's a it's a wider net of an apology, right? Like, because mm-hmm. if you and I have a disagreement and you did something really messed up to me, like maybe I might still work with you, but we're always going to have that like burning kind of. I don't know if I really trust you. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if I do. Yeah, and I think that that just was a bigger a bigger <laughs> happening of that, right? Yeah, like yeah. the community might have appreciated the opportunity, mm-hmm. but is never really going to trust them. And unless it's named, and I think that does so much for indigenous people or just like othered cultures in general, mm-hmm. 
even when it comes to like what has happened to Native people in the country. We have to name those things. We have to admit it. We have that number one. And but, that's but not your, something we're good at here. You take know? yourself away from the table for a minute. You're mm-hmm. not you're not the one who has been hired to, to work with Minnetonka. You are just a person in the community who hears that they've begun this journey. Mm-hmm. They're finally owning it. They 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 are saying they're sorry and they know they have work to do. Is that enough? I mean, for you as a Native American person, as a consumer, does that make you think, oh, I'm going to go and buy Minnetonka now because no. they're on this journey? No. And I think that we saw that a lot. What, what we noticed was that there was a lot of like comments because there was, you know, Star Trib. And what was really interesting was that we were just hoping that it would get out in Minnesota, right? That this apology would, you know, at least be heard here. Because my focus when we started talking to is like, hey, you are from here and have affected indigenous economy here. Like mm-hmm. we need to focus our efforts here first, then we can right. move. The, you know? You're referring to the when they did make this public mm-hmm. announcement that they were doing this work and that they were working with you. That was about a year ago, yep. literally. Um, and I and it went it got picked up everywhere. Oh, yeah. The article like, ran. David and I were like our pictures were in like the UK Daily Mail. Yeah. On Snapchat. People were sending me stuff. And I was just like, wow. You know, it was it was. it Yeah. And we were just like I said, hoping it would the Star Trip would pick. Yeah. Up, you know, how did you how did you feel about that? And what did that tell you? And I also before you answer that, I just want to say my understanding is you started working with them. This started pre 2020. Mm hmm. Um, and I think it's important to say that because I think there's so much and and the work of diversity, equity, inclusion has become so much more public in the in the wake of George Floyd. And this started before that. But did you feel like 2020 really accelerated things? I think so. And I think they, uh, Jory and David mentioned that as well, that, you know, like that had lit a fire for them to to act mm-hmm. and made, you know, made their search for me or someone like me more important. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so this article comes out. It goes worldwide. Your face is everywhere. Everybody suddenly knows you as Adrian Benjamin, the the reconciliation advisor, a title that you probably didn't have on your LinkedIn at that point. Um, How did you feel? I was happy about it. Honestly, nervous. I think my reserves with it were that people were going to see me as this like sellout person that was just Mm. working with this company to try to you know like in a sense be like a Chicago AR you know like like I'm gonna take you on the tour and just stamp your passport in a sense right like so it kind of felt like but superficial yeah, yeah and I and I really like met with some people in my life that I felt trustworthy with and what I kept receiving back was like, you have always done work from your heart, mm-hmm. right? And like what, what with a deeper purpose and mission, and this is no different than that. And if you believe that this company is going to follow through and, and is going to make a bigger impact than just this statement, run with it. Hmm. You're my, you know, and, and my mentors. Yeah, like had always said that to me, too. You know, they're just like your heart is really always in the right place. And if you feel that like you can't ever let anyone else what they're going to think or, you know, and maybe like they might not see that impact Mm -hmm. today or, you know, but like people that know me are going to know that it's legit. And I think that that worked to my advantage and to Minnetonka's advantage when it did go public, because. People do know my work out there and what I'm about and who I am because of my daughter or whatever reasons, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so. It's all led you here. So so what do you think you have done? They knew they had a problem. Mm -hmm. What have you brought to to their to their company? What do you think you've, you've helped them to realize? I think a lot. I think at first, you know, going back to that that public conversation, I don't know that they were initially thinking that that was the first move. Mm-hmm. But it took me, ex- you know, explaining why and just really just just personalizing it. I mean, I remember like in the still to my to this day, like, I mean, and it wasn't that long ago, but it's one of my favorite things 
or I guess compliments. David was like, you really deliver the truth and hard truth in a way with a smile on your face that like makes it like digestible. And even though we don't want maybe want to hear it because we're afraid, Mm -hmm. you make us feel empowered to that it's going to be okay, like and that it is the right move. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was. That I think I brought that to them. I brought courage and I brought the the definite knowledge and, and I think experience of mm-hmm. the other side of the coin, right, and explaining what that looked like. I know I think one of the most impactful conversations that we had was me explaining about there was, you know, this place called Fort Malax in Malax and the and it kind of was part of the trading post too. And that was a place where Native artists would really make their money if they made any. They had moccasins or my specific family had birch bark birdhouses that they would make, their syrup, their rice, all mm. of these different things, right? They would sell them at this place. And I explained and in one meeting, I'm like, can you imagine 75 years ago, because at the time that was where it was at, a truck backing up to this place with these Minnetonka moccasins for whatever price you know like mass produced yeah and at that time indigenous cultures weren't even you know allowed to practice religion they were you know all of this hatred like natives had to stay on reservation but yet here's this company that like is making things that look like this thing look cool right Right, or right mainstreaming it but yet real indians quote you know like indigenous people aren't even allowed the same rights at that time Mm -hmm. and they're taking away that economy they're you know they took away from from real moccasin makers right Right. that that knowledge had been passed down from generation to generation like hand doing work which i understand industrialization like don't get me wrong but that is something like you will never to me a pair of minnetonkas is never going to have the feel and the significance of a handmade pucker toe ojibwe style moccasin never you know We can do all we want to, but it will never yeah. be that, you know, because right. it's like years of practice and artistry. It's artistry. And I think that's another thing that I brought to them, too, is really the understanding of the bigger picture of that, of like, because even we got into it with, with my hats launches that I did because, you know, we had conversations or like, we probably could have a machine where you could, you know, create the outside design of that beadwork on the hat and we could like mass produce. And I was like, no, no. You like, want it done by hand. It should be. Yeah. I think, in, you know, there's certain things and culturally and I would just be undercutting like so many artists and it already just hurts my heart when I go to Walmart and see all this like $2 beadwork earrings, you know, that like yeah. like these ones I'm wearing are like birch bark lacquer, you know, mm-hmm. and these people who hand cut these, you know, it's just like I think holding on to that is such a it's such a different um, like life view or, you know, just in general, because. Right. But how do you reconcile, you know, the realities of, of business and, like you said, you know, I mean, the, the capabilities of, of machines and, and mass production today? You're not going to stop that. Right. So how, how do you hold on to those traditions? How do you take care of those artists and run a successful business? Yes. So this, these are lessons we are learning and, and, <laughs> and, and working through together. But so right now I can pretty sure I can share this maybe check with them but I'm like 90% <laughs> sure one of the main things well let me answer that question first so I think what we've learned is that different artists have a different viewpoint and maybe they've had different mentors or teachers culturally mm-hmm. where they feel like they're okay with a mass production you know like specifically I, I brought on um, and introduced Minnetonka to this graphic designer who I love and she's done my website and like we've we actually share the same which in Ojibwe terms is like I don't know I guess the best way to describe is like a godparent she does great work and one of the biggest things that we had talked about early on and and is still on our list of like major things to work on within Minnetonka as the company is is the Thunderbird design right that that's what they're known for and that's like the most Jory's terms egregious appropriation that they have and so I was thinking about it and I'm like because culturally sometimes you don't draw or you don't try to depict certain 
elements or spiritual beings such as the Thunderbird. And so it would depend on an artist, right, or where they're from or what their teachings were, whether or not they could even try to redesign something like that, right? But I thought of Lucy. Her name's Lucy Shafti. And because her son is actually has that as part of his uh, Anishinaabe name. And mm. I just know she's a great artist. So she's one person that we're working with uh, currently. and To redesign, redesign the, Thunderbird? the Thunderbird and have it actually be an Anishinaabe person designing it. Ah, local artist. Okay. So she submitted a bunch of different designs for that and they're still working on it. Obviously, that one's a little more time consuming to really like because that's going to be the forefront part right yeah, like yeah. i mean that's their leading product like they were like we quit you know promoting it but it's still like a huge seller for yeah. them because it looks native you know whatever but it looks doesn't mean it is right and right. so that's kind of the line but so lucy's been working with them lucy also in the fall here is going to have a collaboration come out with a actual ojibwe beadwork design on the toe of one of the the like I think it's a slipper and a shoe. Mm -hmm. And then in the spring again, she's going to have another one that they've worked out come out. So like. So is that the is that the compromise? Maybe it's you bring in the the native artist and it's their design. It's their beadwork. But then you mass produce you what they've done. That's I mean, and that's up to some people. Some people might not want to sell their beadwork design or sell whatever they're doing. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And that's that's up to that individual. But one thing that I've that we've been talking about too, and has been been a big part of this, and is important, is that Minnetonka has been incredibly thoughtful in in those contract negotiations as well. You know, adding in clauses that if the Millers were to ever sell Minnetonka, that those artists have that opportunity to say no, you're no mm. longer going to produce this. They have royalties for the rest of their life that oh, that wow. is produced. Yep. So these are huge you know, opportunities for these, you know, indigenous artists as as well that are going to be working with mm -hmm. Minnetonka going forward. So I life changing. You're for sure your relationship with them is is ongoing. What I mean, does does the work ever stop? And and I mean, do, <laughs> what other goals do do you have for them right now? What do you see as kind of the, the key? Yeah. Pillars? So we actually just had like a really three-hour planning meeting two weeks ago I think and it was I love it I I get all like I'm total like big picture I, that's where I shine I, yeah. I enjoy that so we've talked about things from creating a, a kind of program with within public and tribal schools to lead to entrepreneurship or mm. to have Local schools come and visit the Minnetonka factory in Northeast. And what does that look like to have Jory and David go talk to public schools about appropriation and hmm. ways that they have learned to navigate it, what they've learned through this process? Um, we've talked about wanting to really scale our what we've learned and use that to teach other people in the in the industry, what they can use to really push their economic force forward and say, hey, this isn't right and we're, we can help you and like yeah. really create this this place. And one thing I've learned is because I, I, I did do work and I should name, name it as well with from from the work that I did with Minnetonka, another company's CEO heard me on NPR and reached out, had kind of a similar situation, just didn't know where to start, did not feel like public going public about the appropriation was the move. Mm -hmm. But through our conversations, Again, she had the courage, and her name's Stephanie Housley from Coral and Tusk. That's another uh, organization that I work with. Mm -hmm. Did a campaign and has seen positive results from it and also gave back to many different areas. So she knew exactly where she was, quote, inspired from, from different pictures or books, from different regalia that she had seen. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, like, my most proud things that had come from that work was that Stephanie now is, like, the sponsor of a second spot in the Wyoming Native Arts Fellowship that was new in the first year. And I, I was actually, okay, so it was, like, kind of a connection thing. So I was asked to be a juror for the Wyoming State Arts First Native Fellowship. 
And so when I met Stephanie, she lives in Wyoming. And I was like, hmm. well, if you're going to continue to sell this one pillow, maybe then yearly you should continue to donate and create a second spot for this arts fellowship that's brand new. And so I connected her with that Wyoming State Arts Council. And now Coral and Tusk sponsors another spot for another Native artist to really, like, you know, come up. And she's wanted, she's talking about wanting to, you know, go forward with collaborations. Um, she's like a home goods company. She does her own... Uh, like, I guess she does artwork on tablecloths, that type of thing, pillows, very intricate artistry. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Check it out. Just giving her a plug. But yeah. So I, I would assume or I would think, especially given the amount of publicity that came out of your relationship with Minnetonka, that you're getting calls to do this work. I, obviously, are there others coming out? There, there are others. I, I just fielded like one other one um i don't know if i could i could say who it is but that's okay it's a bigger yeah clothing brand that has already been doing some work but wanted to kind of have me like relook at their i guess their plan mm -hmm. kind of overall and do you feel like you're developing a a system and a formula for doing this reconciliation work <laughs> i think so and i think and that's where I, why i brought up stephanie initially and i totally got off track but like she was like I've been looking for you hmm. or like this, like this doesn't have a niche. There's no like organization that I can call that. Hey, can you help me with this? If it is like some people might feel, you know, and I think that there is organizations like Illuminative is one I know of for sure that kind of works contractually with people. But I think maybe in my case, because I'm just me, it's less frightening to mm -hmm. go up against somebody where I, I'm coming in as a sole contractor with just my knowledge base and my experiences that have just come from sure. life, you know. But as this career and opportunity evolves for you, something you probably didn't really plan, but it's just it makes sense when you think about your journey. Do you see yourself, um, you know, doing this kind of work? Could you set up a shop? Could, could this be your focus working with and consulting for brands? Or does all this exposure to business make you think, well, maybe I should start a, a, a company that, that makes some of these products truly native? I think all, all of that. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, you know what? Like, because even this phone call to do this, this conversation for me, it was eye opening or like this past year, like I think I shared with you that I was honored by Malax Corporate Ventures as their female entrepreneur of the year. And yeah. that really hit me. I was like, Am I an entrepreneur? Like, am I doing, you know, because like I, <laughs> with my, I, I have like my brand, what I feel like for my artistry and I'm like my website. And then someone was like, you know, you need to like start putting all of those things like you are the, the brand, right? Hmm. Like and doing and, and re, re, make me rethink my entrepreneurship in general, because to me, it was like, I'm good at that and I'm doing it. And someone just felt that in their heart. Right. Like, so it never felt right. like it was, you know, because and it's a different experience for me, too, because it's not like, oh, I have this like degree from Harvard and I'm <laughs> in, in indigenous studies. And so right. I'm, I'm the person you should talk to. Like, I'm just lived experience of like being indigenous and like fighting these fights and like being the loud one in the meetings. Honestly, like, that's what I say to people who talk to me about it, because I was like a very lonely road of feeling like a lot of times being loud in these meetings and saying the things that needed to be said mm -hmm. and maybe not being the most liked person because of that. But then like 20 people later in my inbox, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you had the courage. Mm -hmm. And that's really where it started, you know, to be here now. It's like, wow, like yeah. times I didn't feel supported or like scared because I stood up to so-and-so or this person or thought that this was the right thing to say, you know, and, and it's in the schools, it's in the equity work, it's in these fellowships that I've gotten the opportunity to do, too, is just like open that up for me. And I'm also curious. I mean, when you get to the point of thinking yourself as a business, which which you are yep. in a sense, um, even if you don't think of it set up that way and you don't have a fancy office. Do you think there's a day when you could put yourself out of business? Will, will this work ever be done? I hope so. I, I hope for that day. And I think that like even, you know, now with what what the work that I've set forth with Minnetonka or with Coral or with, you know, potential other people in the future, I think it's then that's what we've talked about, too, with Jory and David is like, how do we take what we've learned to teach others so that it doesn't always take me or like I'm not just a single special thing. Like, obviously, 
mm-hmm. they wouldn't want to take it in that context. And it's so important that I say that because it's like taking my work and then, you know, like, oh, we're going to just exploit it, you know. But I think opening that door and that bridge for other organizations to feel safe, to feel like it's possible, to feel like they can do the right thing and do it in a way that that they can have courage. And I, I've, I've very so often like tell Jory and David and I've told Stephanie too, like, I'm proud of you, hmm. honestly, because it does take guts and it does to stand alone in that and to especially like, you know, to the Native community, to others, because so many of these, like, like we see the ugly emails that come in, you know, they show me like special ones, like <laughs> they want to share, but I've seen the comments, I quit reading them now, but people just see the headline and they like, why do you have to do that? You create beautiful art. Like if you look at something native, you should be able to do that. And it's like, yeah, but okay, give the credit. But you and you're not of that place. Like don't put headdresses on stuff unless you understand the process of what that means, what tribe that even is. Because not only does it is it a bad look for you, but it's a bad look for indigenous people across the country that we're still seen in that way and not like this alive and vibrant people that are right. still here. We're still put in these movies as if we're not reality or not part of today's society. And that's that's what that kind of appropriation does. That's what the 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 Redskins does. That's mm-hmm. all of those things. It's like you're itemized instead of appreciated and celebrated as as a live thriving art the artistry part of it too sure because it's like you can't just copy something that looks like it why would you do that why would you not get the source and like give those opportunities if you're really looking at reconciliation and what that looks like and wanting to give back even in the smallest token of it it has to be and that's one thing that I love about Minnetonka's commitment and why I decided to work with them is like, this is in our company forever now. Yeah. We are going to work with artists. We're going to keep finding these ways. We're going to give back to community. We're going to, we want to create a, and this is what Jory has said too, and I love it, is we don't just want to bring an artist on and have it be a one and done thing. Like we want to create this like family of people. And I really do feel like, like <laughs> me and Jory will be on the phone now and I'm like, we're talking about kids and relationships and like we're buddies you know so it's like and I feel like that's what they really are like they want to come out of this is to have a bigger impact than just like hey Lucy we want your design no we want Lucy to have a good life and to really impact her not only as an artist but as a person and her future Mm -hmm. right her she's got that contract to where it's gonna you know go on and on and her kids will receive royalties so what best outcome could you want towards reconciliation it might not be towards a whole tribe or a whole i think people have this idea like when is it going to get to me i i feel and but that's that whole like systematic country thing of non-acknowledgement right and that's where it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this is like but these companies can do the right thing and have a a good enough impact to where at least some families will feel that economic impact of of the work that they can put in with people and and not only that but it's changing that the landscape of what that looks like in business and in advertising and in all of it like i don't i don't even know that we or jory and david have even grasped the impact of what we've done and what that's rippling out there and what, we, what you're saying, like yeah. getting myself out of a job, like I would love to have a job for doing it for a long time, but there's so much to be done, you know, and I think it's really great. Like, you know, you see the 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 shows now, like the reservation dogs on Hulu or Rutherford Falls or, you know, even the Prey movie that just came out now. It's like this different representation. And I was on a, another podcast called Native American Calling where it was other people who've one person was working on a really big budget movie and they were like the had been tapped to make sure that all of that was culturally okay and you know and then another guy was working in a on a film too and and then there was they were talking to me about <laughs> Minnetonka you know it's mm. like coming in and I don't think that that's I think it's new but I think it's so important and I think it, it gives so many people more opportunity too and 
if we're talking about equity and all of these different countrywide issues, is it too much to really show Indigenous people in an authentic way? Right. Because we don't, if we continue with these like cowboys and Indians ideas or movies like that, like it's still hurting people today. It's yeah. still hurting me. It's still hurting my grandma who's not even here anymore. Like, and, and what, you know, how she felt in mm-hmm. this world, right? If we don't include that as a common today practice and what that looks like, then, you know, we're still only yeah. not cleaning the wounds or just deepening them. Right. So that's where it sits for me. Well, I hope that with all of your constant activity and (laughs) pressures and obligations, you take a moment here or there to to feel proud and know what a difference you are making in this moment and going forward. I appreciate that. I don't think I, I, I my friends or anyone in my life would tell you I don't do that enough. I just like I think it's just, yeah, it's just my nature yeah. of always like, keep going, got to yeah. do the, do yeah, the yeah, most. Yeah. And in addition to making change in business today, I, I think I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think that you're inspiring the next generation of, of Native entrepreneurs and the opportunities that they're going to have and the way they're going to think about business is just going to be completely different. I appreciate that. That's that that would mean the most because I, I do like my heart is in youth work and I miss it like now with what I do, but I still feel like I have the connection still. And that's been really important too with where we're, where we want to go with Minnetonka or the other people that might come up in the future that I might work with is always keeping it back and, and like home focused, right? right? Or like having those connections to bring it back to kids because that always is at the top of my list of like, what are kids going to grow up thinking and like, I, not that I give, and I said this when I work in youth work, like my one thing was always like, I chose it because you can affect change. It is a lot harder to change an adult's mind hmm. or make them understand different ways of thinking yep. than, you know, because that's where we get the whole, if we're going to take this conversation back to the beginning, that's where those, shh, you know, and all those ugly things were being learned at home, you right. know, but a kid can learn to a different idea or learn the truth. Really, yeah. that's what I feel like is like truth and reconciliation go hand in hand. And there's if that they're not together, it'll never work. And I don't know if we can ever truly have reconciliation with the things that have happened and, you know, with indigenous people. But I do believe that we can do better and maybe like take a new path forward right. to something to where that is accounted for and some kind of truth comes out of it, you know, and a better life for Indigenous people. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. Adrian Benjamin, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank your you. Work. Yeah. This was great. <laughs> Fascinating conversation with Adrian and really complex issues, as you just heard, for Minnetonka to sort through. There's no easy or fast solution to all of this, and I think they recognize that this is going to be an ongoing journey. For more perspective on reparations and some of the issues that I think a lot of companies are grappling with today as we become more aware of appropriation and more sensitive to it, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Christopher Michelson is a professor and the academic director of the Melrose and the Toro Company Center for Principled Leadership. Christopher, I know you have a lot of thoughts and and frequently think about art versus commerce and how it all relates and the ethics of it. I'm really curious your thoughts on being a company that's in the business to make products and when those products are artistic and capitalize on a particular culture. Yeah, Allison, thanks for talking with me about this. It was, as you said, a fascinating and complicated conversation. And actually to suggest that I had the answers to these difficult questions would be entirely um, arrogant and, and false. You know, you said that I study ethics, but I also study what's called aesthetics by philosophers. And ironically, even though these are ethical questions, a lot of the, the answers and thoughts that I have relate to how we think about art. We'll talk a little more about that. What, what comes to mind for you as you were listening to Adrian? 
So one thing that came to mind for me was, you know, the, the word appropriation. That's sort of about taking somebody else's idea or creation and then capitalizing on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in Western legal systems, there are precedents for thinking about this kind of thing. That's how we think about intellectual property theft. Right. And the very idea that there is such a thing as intellectual property. But I'm not an expert on IP either. Um, <laughs> but I have studied, among other things, Chinese art. Um, I'm half Chinese myself. And there's a tradition in Chinese art whereby artists sometimes paint in the style of an old master. And they do so so authoritatively that sometimes they don't even sign their own name to their painting, hmm. which is typical. You know, in Western tradition, it's typical. You know, you look for the signature of the artist. But this is a way of honoring an old master. And sometimes it confuses our historians so much they don't even know what period a painting was painted in, much less who actually painted it. What's so interesting about that is it's, it's Minnetonka is almost moving in the opposite direction where they had been liberally using designs and inspiration from Native American culture. And now that they are partnering specifically with artists, they're being very careful to give credit, to give ongoing royalties and to make sure that those artists are rewarded for the work. Yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. And I think one of the key points of contrast is that Minnetonka is doing it for profit, mm -hmm. whereas these artists who are honoring old masters are doing it to honor a culture, but without much, if any, self-interest involved. And I think that in a Western economy, we think so much about each person's interest. In fact, we even have words in finance about interest that are called interest. <laughs> and so we think so much about, you know, how much am I owed that I think in this system in which this company is seeking to profit off of somebody else's ideas, we have to think about how are those interests shared and how can we separate them and distribute them in a fair way. Right. No easy answers, as you said. I, I, I'm curious, though, from your lens and your work in, in ethics and in business, can you truly make reparations? Can a company that makes money selling products that are, you know, art and culturally driven actually, you know, move forward and make amends for generations of appropriation? Well, first of all, you know, I separated art from commerce, but I don't think that there's a strict separation between them. And I think the idea that commerce sometimes uses predecessors' art or culture in order to make new things and innovate, I think that can be an artistic process mm -hmm. and that it sometimes can be productive. But I think when it is done in a way that, that exploits somebody else's culture or misrepresents somebody else's culture or just doesn't share the spoils of doing so in a fair way, that's when I think it becomes a problem. Right. So I, th I think in answer to your question, I don't think it's possible strictly to make reparations to those who are actually harmed, because in many cases, those harms were permanent and those harms happen to people who are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean, I don't think, that we can't actually find a way to move forward together in a, in a just and collaborative way. And I think that's what it sounds to me like they are trying to do. Right. And so I think one of the really difficult questions, and I already alluded to this before, that they're going to have to figure out is, what is the distribution of interest? You know, what is, what is a fair distribution for who claims ownership over the product, who claims ownership over the mass production at scale, and what is a fair distribution of the shares in that kind of system? Hmm. Yeah. Big questions, um, ongoing conversations, but at least there, there, there seems to be some, some hope. And like Adrian said, acknowledgement is the first step, and it seems that they're doing that. Absolutely. And, 
you know, I think I said before, I'm not a reparations expert, but that is a really important first step. And it is only a first step. And those who are experts know that there is a lot more to it. Um, apology, rectification, compensation, prevention of recurrence, and, and so on. I think that one of the challenges that we are talking about is that we're talking about people and objects that have what we call in philosophy intrinsic worth. You know the old MasterCard commercial when they say certain things are priceless? Mm -hmm. Well, cer certain things are priceless, and we're trying to put a price on them. And markets are imperfect. We can't put a price on everything, especially things that are priceless. Hmm. Good point. Complicated issue to be sure. Christopher Michelson, thank you for your perspective. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Allison. Thank you. And thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find all of our episodes and other conversations and perspective from professors. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Forlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham, for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Mm -hmm.